We've got Chris Martin in the studio, sixth generation yeah. Martin. And I was thinking about this, that I just think, Chris, it's unbelievable that six generations of Martins yeah. didn't freaking screw it up. They got it right for six generations and, and they continue to. No, the, you know, the business has ebbed and flowed. Has changed. We've had challenges. In fact, when I took over, my good friend Brian Majewski. Choke him on the mic a little bit, if, if you can. Yeah, yeah that's so, perfect. So I took over. My, my father retired. My grandfather passed away. I become chairman and CEO. And Brian and his, and his brother uh, were the editor and publisher of Music Trades, which is kind of the, the Bible right. for the trades in, in music industry. And Brian comes up and he goes, Chris, do you know what your, your new job description is? I go. This was after your father had passed away. He grandfather. So you're, now you're I'm chairman and CEO at age 33. Right. And Brian, we've known each other since you know teens. And he goes, you know what your job description is now? I go, no, but you're going to tell me. He and I'll paraphrase because he was very blunt. He goes, don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. Yeah. Wait. So this was. So you were, were running the company. Your father was still alive, and you had. My started... father had moved to Florida. He retired after he... the after the folk rock boom. Yeah. He had had enough. He had so had he, enough. And then my grandfather briefly ran the company in his 90s. I was a vice president. But then when my grandfather passed away, I inherited enough stock to be of all the family, the one. Because my grandfather saw, hey, this Chris seems to have an interest and potential. Right. And yeah. But didn't you originally, you didn't have an interest or you didn't know if you were going to have an interest? My in mom and dad got over? divorced when I was three. Yeah. And it was an ugly divorce. And so my mom never encouraged me to pay any attention. I would go and visit and generally stay with my grandparents, Mr. C.F. Martin and Daisy, because my father was off getting married and remarried and divorced. And, and it took me a while to kind of say, you know, this is pretty fascinating. I should pay attention. And were you a guitar player? Are you a guitar player? I got my first Martin. Still, I'm living with my mom in New Jersey. But, you know, I'm watching the Beatles, and I'm like... Ah, and is we... she cursing the family business to oh, you? Yeah. Oh, She's like, cur- you, you don't want to go father. into that. You don't want to go into the guitar business. She's cursing like, my father. She's and cursing your father. That, right? yeah, 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 yeah. But so I, I contacted my father and my grandfather, and I said, can I get a guitar for Christmas? Of course. So what do they do? Typical. I get a 518, which is a lovely little, little Martin. But it was nylon string because that's what you do. You get a young person a nylon string guitar because they're easier to play. Right. So I get this guitar, and then there's a teacher in the town in Lyndhurst that my mother knew, and she said, Mr. Conrad is going to take you on as a student. So I go over to his studio. It's in the basement. I open the guitar. He goes, oh, that's a very nice Martin guitar. He's gone, no, I got it for Christmas from my father and my grandfather. And there's actually a little plaque on the back of the guitar, you know, Merry Christmas, Chris, from Poppy and Dad. And I'm thinking Beatles, right? And he pulls out this little footstool. And he goes, put your foot on the footstool. I want you to sit straight up like this. I'm like, okay. And I want you to put the one knee up here. And I want you to take that guitar because it's a nylon string. Right. And he's putting you in a classical position. And I'm going, I've never seen any of the Beatles ever do this. He did a good job of teaching me to read, but we didn't bond. So I'm going to leave it up to right. the listener's imagination as to how good a guitar player Chris Martin really is. Much worse than the other Chris Martin, that's for sure. Did you go through your life being, like, did that guitar teacher know that you were the son of the Martin guitar? He figured it out pretty quickly. And out... I think that's why he thought, I'm going to get to teach him to be the next Andre Segovia. Right. And I'm like, can't you teach me to be one Bob of the next Dylan Beatles? or Beatles. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But, so when you were in college, I think, if I understand the timeline, you still maybe were not sold on taking over the family business, or maybe you were. Well, I never thought about taking over. Ta- but I thought about joining. Joining it. Yes. And, and I ultimately studied business. I thought, okay, this will be good. I worked in the shop, too. Once I realized I didn't know anything about it, I did spend a rotation in the shop. And, and so what I, what I say about that experience was I learned a great deal of respect for the high level of skill and talent that my colleagues have Chris Martin is dangerous with a chisel. This Chris Martin. This Chris Martin, yeah. Bob Taylor is very skilled with a chisel. Chris Martin is dangerous yeah, with a chisel. That's that's right, Bob. <laughs> Get out of here. But what's so your parents, I think in an attempt to sort of dangle the business in front of you, they send you like a guitar kit in college. No, I was in summer camp. You were in summer camp. And the I had gone to camp and they and the, the person running the craft part, yeah, he knew who I was and he's like, Let's build a guitar. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, contact your dad. 
And I contacted my dad, and they kind of threw a bunch of stuff in a box. To build a guitar. But I didn't know. And and it ends up, tra- you build the square guitar. Right. Trapezoidal shape. A trapezoidal yeah. shape. Yeah. And you build this guitar, and is that when you started to realize, you know, maybe I should go into the... No, because that, now... that, that experience was extraordinarily frustrating to me. Because yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, and after I got done with it, it's like, this is embarrassing. It it wasn't really until I came and and got into the business and saw that people saw in me the future. That the people at, in Nazareth at the Martin Guitar Company said, there's continuity here. And that's when I realized that's part of my job, is to give them the comfort that there is a Mr. Martin at the helm. And do you think CEO was in your blood, or did you have to grow into the position over so time? So that's, that's a really interesting question. When We're going to fast forward. When I took over, business was terrible. It was absolutely the end of the folk rock boom and the beginning of disco. And I'm also thinking... When you took over in 80... When yeah, it, early it's 80s. It's hair metal. People want electric right. guitars. Yeah, that was it. Nobody I'm wants Talking to George Groot about that today. Everybody wanted a Kramer. Yeah, everybody wanted a Kramer. Yeah. Yeah. So where was I going with this? Blah, blah, blah. Something you were oh, saying... Okay, so fast forward. The business picks up. I attribute it to MTV Unplugged. George attributes it to demographics. We have a different perspective on, but it picks up. We get busy. Now I'm thinking, boy, this is... A little bit more than I signed up for. This, we're getting to be like a big company here. And I went to the board. I said, I, need, I really need some help. And they were sympathetic. They said, well, what do you think? I said, I think I need what's called a COO, a chief operating officer. I'm the CEO. So I hired a, a, a recruiter that I had met. I was on a bank board. And he was one of the recruiters that auditioned for the bank board gig. Didn't get it. But I liked his style. So I called him up, and he said, thanks you know, for the opportunity. I need to learn about you and your company first. How can I go find someone to help you if I don't know what I'm looking for? So we, we had a bunch of conversations. I gave him the tour, and he said, I need to know more about you so I can find someone that compliments you. My wife is an executive coach. Would you spend some time with her? Sure. So we do all those psychological profile tests, and we have lots of great conversations. And she says, okay. Time for graduation, Chris. I'm like, great. What's up? She goes, well, this is fascinating. You're sixth generation. I go, yeah, I know that. She says, you know how it goes in family business. By the third generation, it can go either way. Right. Right? Either the third generation, and I talk, I'm going to talk about this tonight, the different generations in my family. And isn't it funny that the third generation, which is always what you, if you read about this, about family. It can go either way. It can go either way. And it's really the golden era of the guitars themselves is the third generation When that's the pre-war marinara, and that's what everybody wants is the third generation. She says to me, she says, you know, I've learned enough about you to realize that you're kind of entrepreneurial. And I thought about Frank Henry because he was entrepreneurial, as was CF the first. CF the second was more of a steady Eddie. My grandfather was more of a steady Eddie. And 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 she said, and what I've also kind of determined from our discussions and all these psychological profiles is. Your best, highest and best use is not trying to run the business every day. I said, I know that. That's why we're here. She said, but now I can talk to my husband about finding someone to compliment you. And so I went out and I've now worked with several presidents and it really works. I'm the guy that gets to go, let's go there. And then the president has to say to everyone else, and here's how we're going to get there. <laughs> right. So is one of the first things that you bring in to, like, one of the first let's go there's, is that the backpacker guitar? So the backpacker, we were cold called by a gentleman in St. Louis representing a family that he was very close to in Mexico. And this was when, um, oh, what's the thing they put in between the U.S. and Mexico and Canada to allow business to the, um, be facilitated. You know what that thing is. It's been around now tariffs for a while. Tariffs or... Uh, uh, it's, there's no tariff. That was there's the thing. No, it was, Bill Clinton put this into yes, effect. Yes, you can, you can send parts in. I'm blanking in. on the name, though. But yeah, yeah, you can yeah, send yeah. parts in. You can do assembly. you got to send it back out. So the first thing, it was a test, was strings. We sent a couple of string winders down, 
a ball ender, and we went down and trained six people to make strings, and it worked. So, so pretty quick. So, but so Martin's making all of their strings in Nazareth, and there's no there's no factory in Mexico. There's no. two Martin factories. There's yeah, the, one, and the first factory in Mexico was basically a garage. Was a garage. Yeah. And because of this thing that Bill Clinton's put this new rule law into effect or whatever yeah. it is it's advantageous now to start building things right so and does someone come to martin and say how about this or does someone realize this could be a thing well so we do we're doing the strings yeah i go to the philadelphia folk festival and we had a booth they had a little crafty area so we were the anchor at the far end so you had to kind of go down this and there's all this craft you know hippie stuff right it's a folk festival and i'm taking a break from our booth and i'm walking by and i look in this booth and it's like huh what are the, what the hell are those things? And it was mostly a, a trapezoidal-shaped instrument that when I engaged the gentleman, he said, oh, I call that the strum stick. Okay, what does it do? Well, it's really for, like, festivals, for people that don't really know how to play because it has a dulcimer keyboard. And so all you do is your bar fret and your strum. So oh, that's cool. I said, what's, what's that thing in the back? He goes, oh, that's funny, Chris. I have some friends who play the guitar, and they asked me if I could make a strumstick version of a guitar. And I'm looking at it going, okay, it has six strings. He goes, can I tell you how I make it? I go, yeah, Bob, tell me. He goes, no, I got a patent. Oh, yeah, but tell me. He goes, I come up to your factory. You do? Yes, I go, you know that little guitar maker's connection area where you sell the wood that you can't use? I go, yeah. He goes, I buy that wood. Well, Bob, tell me more. So I buy a blank of mahogany, okay? bring it back to my shop, cut, open up the bottom. I take that piece from the bottom and I kind of splay out the sides and that makes the body. Okay. And then you know what I do for the back, Chris? I go, no, Bob, what do you do? I buy a reject Martin guitar back. And that's what I use on the back of this, of the, it wasn't called the backpacker. I forget what it was. It was a, it was a widget. It was, yeah, a, it was, it was a six string yeah, yeah, yeah. drumstick. And what about the top? Oh, the top, I buy a reject Martin guitar top. What about the fingerboard and the bridge? That's really funny. I buy a, bri- a, a fingerboard and I lop off the bottom. I make the bridge out of the bottom. And then I, the fingerboard doesn't need that many frets. And right. I'm going, Bob, I could do that. He goes, Chris, I'll sue you. I have a patent. <laughs> and I said, Bob, hold that thought. And he came up to the factory and I thought this could be the first Martin guitar we make in Mexico because it's simple to make. And everybody laughed when Bob showed it to him. But then when Bob talked to everyone about how he did it, the first thing they all said is, we can do that. I said, we can, but we have to partner with him because he has a patent. Because he's got the patent. I don't. How many of those things have we made? You, t- you tell me. I don't Over know. Over a million Over of a them. million. You see them everywhere. I know. They're, and it's, your, it's the first instrument. And it taught my colleagues in Mexico how to make a simple guitar. Right. You, you don't want to go to a factory where they don't know how to make guitars and say, let's learn how to make D45s today. <laughs> and did you think, though, because you're taking over the family business, w- did people ever think, like, did you feel a need to prove yourself, like, that you're not just here because you're part of the family business? You know, I, I will say there's, a, there's been a couple of models that I felt very passionate about, that I felt that they would not exist if I had not pushed them forward. Two in particular that I can think about, neither of which were successful. (laughs) But early on, the idea that you're pushing this backpacker guitar, which could be a stain on the family legacy. No, it was a good product. It It was a good value. It fretted. It sounded more like a banjo than a guitar, but it was really durable. (laughs) <laughs> and then didn't that guitar, le- that was really what set up the Mexican factory, no. the Mexico factory, nope. to build more guitars? No? Nope, nope, nope. So I, I was a road warrior. Yeah. Well, Particularly before Claire was born. I would, at least a week a month, I'd be out all over the world. Domestically, Canada, Europe, Asia, you know. So I'm in Albuquerque, and I do give him the talk. I give the talk, and this gentleman comes up to me afterwards. He goes, Mr. Martin, I'm, uh, oh, what's his name? I'll think of it. Can I show you a guitar that I invented? And it, this is not the first time this has happened to me. I'm like, okay. You never know, right? You never know what you're going to see when someone says I invented Aren't you just being polite there? Don't you just... I'm, and curious. And curious. Okay, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was very nice. He wasn't pushy. 
And he opens up the case, and, and I look at it, I go, this is very well made. Oh, I didn't make it. I, I commissioned the Pimentel brothers. They were, they were luthiers in Albuquerque. I'm not a guitar builder, but I have an idea. And I looked at it, and I said, you know, I've seen a guitar like this before. I only saw one, and it was at a luthier show, and it was done kind of as a joke. He said, I don't think it's a joke. And I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I want you to make them. I said, oh, boy, I don't know. I don't know if we can. What was the guitar? It's or, called the X-Series. The X, so the X-Series has the sides of it. It's, it's uses are, high pressure laminate. High pressure which laminate. Which is a, it's a man-manipulated wood product. People right. say, oh, Martin's making plastic guitars. No, it's not an ovation. It's made from what's called craft paper. Craft paper is the best paper they make. Where does paper come from? A tree, right? Right. And that really, and that's that what you was the guitar that we made in Mexico, because that required a body and a neck and the attachment. Yeah. And now today we're actually making solid wood guitars with sprayed on finishes, but it was a learning curve. You, you don't want to just start at the high end when it, you're trying to teach people how to make guitars. Right. <laughs> but that was, so he shows you that guitar and you realized, you immediately realized that the deal. material is what was special about it. Yeah, that, that it's... It's easy to manufacture, and it, I've always felt I never wanted people to say, oh, Martin Guitars, they're just for rich people. No, I didn't want that to be my legacy that, you know, the average Why punter not? could never. Isn't that, isn't no, that kind of a cool the, thing? Martin Guitars should be. The people's guitar. We can't make $99 guitars, but we can make pretty good $599 guitars. Right. So we're more medium and advanced. We're not your beginner guitar, but I didn't want us to be your third guitar. I wanted us to be your second guitar. Right. So when you take over the company, yep. what did you think was you, you, your, your brother, I guess, was your brother who said, don't screw it up. That's basically my, my friend Brian. Your, your friend yeah. Brian said, don't yeah, yeah. screw it up. Yeah. But did you have this idea of what you thought like the North Star was for Marin that you were always chasing or that you were always doing I, what i've learned and you know sometimes you learn by doing that there's seldom a steady state in business and if you aren't trying to move forward you're probably slipping backwards and that has been inspirational to me to remind everyone i can't we can't guarantee that we're going to grow but i can guarantee that if we don't try and grow we're probably not going to right and we're going to be yesterday's news <laughs> and is there, do you ever think about how do I, what do I do to brand Martin the way like other guitar companies have gone to like lifestyle brands and all these things, which Martin hasn't really done with the exception of like some t-shirts, maybe and accessories. Like we talk about it today where, yeah. you know, how today their conversation is how do we keep the customer engaged better after the sale? And it's a bit of a challenge because the sale is done in a music store. Right. So the, the music store owner kind of owns the customer. And they're, you know, they, well, do we want to give the, Martin that customer information? But so we're trying and we're also trying to send a more unified message because everyone in this industry has an opinion. And we learned that if you let a music store use their version of what they think the Martin story is, and if 10 music stores have 10 different stories, the customer gets very confused. So we are saying to the dealer, this is how we would like you to present our brand so we have some consistency. So that when the customer goes to any Martin dealer, they feel like the story's the same. And is that the imaging of the way the guitars are displayed or is that? Yeah, it can be that. And how do you, how do you, how do you promote it, whether it's right. in advertising or on the internet? We want consistency in terms of, you know, these are the logos you can use in these colors. You know, don't, get too wild and crazy and yeah and then does it come down to just building the innovation that comes from the products and is that what pushes the brand forward and keeps people engaged with it i think my opinion is that i don't think any now some people who are running bigger guitar businesses than me think they can move the market i think what we what guitar builders can do is respond to the market you know the the, the guitar boom that happened during covid i don't think happened because any of us had a grand marketing plan. Right. We just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And it was a very difficult time for me being on NAM as the chairman of NAM during COVID because as the chairman of NAM, I did not just represent guitar builders. I represented everyone in the music products industry. And during COVID, not everyone benefited from the guitar boom. Who, what, what 
Like big sound. Big sound, right. Big sound companies right. weren't jumping up and down, you know, saying this is the best year we ever had during I would COVID. almost think like school instruments too. Like yes, horns that, and very sex. difficult. Yep. Very difficult. Yes. And so then what is, your, what is your role then as the chairman of NAM in those positions? It was really what Joe Lamont, as the president said, he said, Chris, you were the right chairman for this time because your family business has seen challenges and survived them. And I actually wrote an article for Music Trades where I called out all of the incidences over the past 187 years where the company ran into something that they didn't anticipate, including pandemics. Right. The Martin Guitar Company, this is not the first pandemic the Martin Guitar Company has encountered. Is there a documented instrument boom in the last pandemic with Martin, which was, I guess, No, the the two booms that I experienced were really because of the music and the musicians, the Beatles. That's the one everyone in the industry points to. You know, in the late 1950s, the accordion was a pretty popular thing. By the early 1960s, it was electric guitars (laughs) and acoustic guitars, yeah. Right. But so... As the chairman of NAM, you take over and then, or now you take over, you've been doing it for a minute, but how did you have to represent the companies that maybe were, were struggling like last My sound? feeling was to, on the one hand, remind everyone that there is a future, that, you know, as, as a representative of my family's business who has seen these ups and downs, that the chances are most of us will survive this. Right. And also to be sympathetic and not, as the chairman of NAM, to be pounding my chest going, well, we're experiencing guitar boom. I'm sorry, you aren't. Screw you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but is, is the strength of Martin the fact that it got big enough early on so that when it was going through these ups and downs of just guitar, the guitar industry, it was just able to weather through and continue making good products? Like- no, I don't believe that because... We were pretty big in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And then when it turned down, it was very difficult to become unbig. And we had to become unbig before we got big again. That was right. very difficult. Very difficult, I will say, when you're, you know, talking about people's livelihood. And, and the, was, yeah, no, I'm sorry. And the company's ability to continue to pay you because we don't need the work that you do so well because the demand isn't there. That's hard. And has Martin ever taken on outside investors at any point? The closest we got was at the end of the folk rock boom. My dad had made four acquisitions. He bought the Darko String Company from the Didarios. And of course, now they're, they took their, their name and, and you know, have a much bigger string business than we do. That was brilliant. He bought a banjo company, Vega Banjos. We, we, once we figured out how to make them, there's not much demand. He bought a drum company, Fives Drums. It's a whole different market. And he bought a guitar factory in Sweden. So the company was levered up. The guitar boom of that boom goes away. We've got these three acquisitions. The banks called the loans. The banks, the banks had changed hands. And mm-hmm. they didn't know my dad. And they, they said, this doesn't look good. We want our money back. Well, businesses are like, the money's in the, in the business. What do you mean you want the money back? And they said, well, you need to find an investor. So we went out, and at that time, they were called vulture investors. And they were, they were very honest. They said, we would love to buy your company. We will buy it at a significant discount. We will fire everyone in charge, and you won't recognize the company when we're done with it. Fortunately, my grandfather said, wait a minute. Yeah. I need to think about this. Then, And the one thing I will say that I'm proud of is when I took over, we were really struggling. First thing I said is, you know, we've had some concerns about quality. This came up, we went to visit Shiloh Music yesterday, and the uh, father said, he said, Chris, you know, 70s weren't the best time for Mars. I said, I know, but only you and I could see that. And I said, if it's 3,000 guitars from 23,000, let's make 3,000 good guitars. So that got my colleagues in the shop excited, and I said, I can't afford to give you a raise. And they're like, but what I can do, and I can't guarantee this, but I can guarantee that if we make a profit, I'll share some of it with you. Now, I just retired. I was CEO for 35 years. I distributed in profit sharing to my colleagues during my career over $100 million wow. in profit sharing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But when you're, I, was it your, your father or your grandfather who was dealing with these, I guess, not loan sharks, but was dealing with, how, how did he end up figuring out how to get out of that situation? It was just... We tightened our belt, cut costs, and then 
it was a while, but then MTV Unplugged happened. And that was that was. And we were ready. We were poised. We were just kind of waiting. Like, if something happens that does increase the demand, we're ready. And we were ready. Right. Yeah. And has Martin ever... Like, you know, did Marin ever say, Eric Clapton, you're doing MTV Unplugged. Here's a Marin guitar. Th- these artists were just so drawn to it because of the legacy of the company. Yeah, my right? feeling has been that, f- for example, an artist model, that conversation begins when you, the artist, have already fall in, fallen in love with a Martin guitar. Right. It's not, hey, can I do an artist model? I play the other brand, but I'll switch if you do an artist model. It's like, no, that's not how this works. Right. You have to love us first before we love you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but, so really, it's just the fact it's the company legacy that all these artists were playing Martin guitars. I, I really believe that. On MTV that's Unplugged. one of the things that we have more history with than a lot of my contemporary competitors. And I, you know, when I talk to kids who are really into it, they are curious about where did this music come from? Who were the artists that made the music that's influencing? And it's not just the artists. What were they playing? Right. Right? Right. John Mayer says, you know, when I was young, I was really keen on Bob Dylan and his music. And I, of course, what kind of guitars did Bob play? Bob played a Martin. And then you go like, well, who influenced Bob Dylan? This guy named Woody Guthrie. What kind of guitars did Woody Guthrie play? Woody Guthrie played a Martin. So that continuity, I think, gives the new player, wait a minute, there must be a reason my heroes all played a Martin guitar. It's funny, because when I graduated college, my grandmother said to me, she was going to buy me a guitar as a graduation present. And she said, but the only thing I'll buy you is a Martin. There you go. That's Perfect. what she said. She said, I'm not going to buy you anything. Else. She wasn't even a musician yeah, or a guitar player. She, 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 she didn't right. even know, but she knew. She yeah, knew that right. that was the yeah, the yeah. thing to get. Yep. So there's a moment when you're running the company, yep. and I think these guitar historians come to you, and they want to look at some of the artifacts in the museum yep. to figure out the building process yes. of yeah. CF. Yeah. And would they, would they come to this conclusion that the X-bracing – was originally created, or CF originally started doing the X-bracing because when he was drilling the pegs in the bridge, he could do that without hitting the bracing underneath the guitar. That was one of the conclusions. One, you know, we have pretty good records. Yeah. I wish we had diaries. Do you, I was going to ask you, I, don't, you know, don't, wouldn't that be incredible to have diaries? Yeah, or... to, to, to have any one of my ancestors say, and this is why we did it. Right. So we have to kind of... Put the puzzle together and say, "This is why we think we did it." They did. They it. did. Yeah. It. But an X bracing came. It wasn't all at once. It was fan bracing, like on a Spanish classic guitar. And then, if you look at his work as he began to investigate that, hey, I got to get these braces out of the way. It came over time. It wasn't like one model had fan bracing and the next model had traditional X bracing. It it was like. He, and pretty soon he's like, well, wait, if I move them here, I can make them and interlock them. And that's what was cool about it was to see the evolution of it. Right. And that was for gut string guitars. It wasn't until the 1920s when the steel string, thank you, banjo and mandolin, because steel strings for guitars were available in the late 1800s. But it's my understanding that the quality pretty much not sucked. Great. But then when, when the string makers had to make high quality strings for banjos and mandolins, that's when... Okay, can we put them on the guitar? And the X bracing worked. Right. We didn't have to redesign. We just had to make it more substantial. Right. To to take that tension from the steel strings. So when these historians come to you, yeah. and they, wh- what do they say? They say we you have the best archive of Marin guitars, and they have collections. And so they have they, collections. They said this will be the central point, and they basically we took tables like this and laid them all out end to end in the museum started with the oldest guitar we had, and they would occasionally put one of their guitars in this list of, okay, here's all of CF's work. Let's go inside with mirrors and cameras and take a picture and then try and figure out what does this mean? What, do these, what does this evolution of this thing that creates the X-bracing, 
And that's as close as we can get without going back in history and you know say, CF, can we buy you a beer? We want to ask you a question about right. X bracing. <laughs> and it, but it seems like this has become the common thought practice is that the X bracing was originally designed because you could drill in right. without. And is that just because they're just assuming? That that's kind of what he was thinking. Sounded like it could. It sounded like it could. Yeah, like we have no idea, we right? We, we don't really know. We don't really know. But that they no. come to this conclusion that the only reason he would have started this yeah. X bracing and, and pattern it was, it was for practicality. It was wasn't for practicality. For tone. It was for practicality, right? But and, and why is it? Why is it that the X bracing makes actually creates a better tone on the guitar? I feel like this might be obvious, but I, I've never really and known. that. You know, that now you're getting into a question that there's going to be different answers. All I know is it works. Because it works. I can't tell you exactly why, but it works, and it's worked for us for a long time. Most guitar builders copy us, <laughs> so it must work if everyone wants to Something... copy Martin X bracing. Right, right. <laughs> is it weird that some of the earlier Martins are not as valuable as the ones that are in that pre-war Well, war it was, again, it was the steel era? strings and the, and the neck. You know, the initial steel string Martin guitars were basically classic guitars with steel strings. And so the body and the neck connected at the 12th fret. Right. The finger ward was very wide. That's not, not what you want to play Americana music. Right. You want... So for us, it was serendipity. This gentleman named Perry Bechtel came to visit. And Perry was a, a very well-known vaudeville banjo player. And he said, you know, this vaudeville thing's going away... I'm actually thinking about taking up the guitar. But the problem is, I'm so used to playing the banjo, could you make me a guitar that feels like a banjo? And we're like, what do you mean? He goes, I, I just, the neck's so wide, and I work my way up the fingerboard, and I bang into the body. Think when about is, it. When is this? What, what year? It's 1928. 1928. So he goes away, and he's like, oh, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? So we had the triplo. That was the biggest guitar, but it was 12 fret. And we were making archtop guitars. The archtop guitar had a 14 fret neck, and the neck was narrower, and there was a radius on the fingerboard. So I don't know whether how the conversation went, but the conclusion was if we take the neck off the archtop, we've got to reconfigure it because archtops, the neck kind of fly up like right. this, right? So we've got to make it more like a traditional flat top neck, but make it 14 frets, and we'll take the triple O 12 fret body and when we bend the sides we'll, we'll push the sides down more and square them off and that's where we got the two extra frets so we make one he comes we hand it to him he goes I'll take it and we thought maybe that is what that's the missing link between a, a guitar with 12 frets and a guitar that was designed for, or a guitar with steel strings that was basically a classic guitar, and redesigning the guitar to make it, to make it work for the steel strings. And in our, in my estimation, that for the Martin brand, that's the beginning of what I call the Western guitar. When people around the world refer to, they don't, they mean guitars made in the in America to play Western, and not just country Western, but Western music. Right. Not European music, not Asian music, basically American music. And then, of course, right. what I find fascinating, and people don't always talk about, is the cross-pollination between music that came out of parts of Northern Europe and American music. Without that, Americana music would be completely different. Without the roots of, well, my ancestor came from Scotland. My ancestor came from Ireland. My right. ancestor came from, you know, part of France where they played a lot of accordion and, you know, Cajun and all that. That, that music came from Europe. It wasn't here. <laughs> you right. know? And then the Martin guitar happened to be in the right place at the right time. So yeah. what is the leap from that guitar that was basically created because a banjo player yep, wanted a guitar yep, that yep. felt a little bit more like a banjo? Yep. What's the leap from that to the dreadnought? Oh, then? boy. That's a whole... That's, a, that's too big of a question. It isn't. Because, and again, we're, we're trying to... There's a fellow in Hawaii... Keelan, he is obsessed yeah. with the connection between a gentleman named Major Kilikai and the Dreadnought. And he's actually, he's gotten funding. He's working on a, on a documentary. The Martin Foundation has given him money. So his theory, and it's like, you know, we cannot refute this, is that Major Kilikai 
who was a classically trained musician, primarily on the guitar, had a band, came to the mainland for two purposes, make a living, and also he wanted to talk politics. He wanted to talk about, hey, you know, while I'm here, um, can we just talk about why you, why you all came and took over our island? You know, we were, we were there first. So he, he, had a, he had an agenda. But at some point, he gets hooked up with a gentleman named Harry Hunt at Ditson. Ditson was maybe sort of like the Guitar Center or the Sam Ash of its day. Chain, music stores out of Boston. And we were making some Ditson models. And Major Keela guy goes, I want a Martin guitar, but I want a Martin guitar that I have a hand in the design of. And Harry, or, yeah, Harry Hunt knew my grandfather and great-grandfather and said, let's pay attention to this guy. I know it's not, you know, he's going to want something a little odd, but let's try and accommodate it. Let's hear him out. Yeah, so we built him one, and we recently built some prototypes. And it doesn't look necessarily like a dreadnought, but it's deep. And, and we really do believe that that one guitar that we made for him was the beginning of, because prior to that, the, the goal of, of most guitar builders was you want to build a box that gives you a balanced sound between treble, mid-range, and bass. But now we're kind of looking at this thing and thinking, sh- should we make something that's got more bass? So out of that came the original Dreadnoughts. They were 12-fret slothead. Right. So they weren't contemporary, but they had an interesting sound, and they were originally called bass guitars. Not because they were four strings, but because of that predominantly right. deep rumbling bass that would come out of them. But then the, the missing, and then Ditson went bust. Oh boy, what did we do? So we got, we stopped making all the other models. We said, oh, well, keep, the, keep that Ditson, we'll keep the Dreadnought. Put our name on it, didn't sell very well. And then it was particularly country musicians who were like, wait just a minute. Wait a minute. That thing's got the modern neck. It's got steel strings. I'm in a band. We're going on tour. The people in the back of the Grange call can finally hear me. And it looks great. It doesn't it have a presence? To stand out in front with a band. You're up there with that and thing. And play a dreadnought. You're, you're great, expecting right? something yeah. to happen. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's so, got a look. So that was the, it was really country musicians that. I believe they were the ones that, and, and now. You know, Gene Autry was the first one right. to commission a D45, even though it was a 12 fret. When I talked to George Groot, he goes, Chris, you know, he wasn't the best musician in the world. I, I know George, but he was a famous singing cowboy and he played a Martin guitar and that's what in counts. the movies. That can't hurt. That, that's what counts. <laughs> so, okay, wait. So the Martin Guitar Factory yeah. is you can actually go to it and tour it. Can, yeah. We were talking earlier. It's probably been about 10 years yeah. and apparently it's changed a lot. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone's got to go and if you're a guitar player and, you play, and you're acoustic guitar player, you got to go and you need to yeah. see the factory, yeah. right? It's... That's, that's where you'll get a sense, and I don't want to be crass, but you'll get a sense of, oh, now I understand why they're so expensive. Yeah. And we have a wonderful museum that takes you from, you know, the beginning to today. Yeah, it's the, the tour is, I, I've given thousands of tours. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember at the tour, one of the things they say is that Marin does have a reserve of Brazilian rosewood to use on guitars. I was going to ask, how much Brazilian does Marin have left? There's a cachet that I put away maybe 25 years ago. Yeah. So one of the guitars I brought here has one of those sets. So we're probably down to 29 sets. Are you serious? So that's of, it. of Marin guitars of that Marin that can make Brazilian, Brazilian Rose, it. it's probably 29 29 guitars. or 30 sets. They're beautiful yeah. sets, but that's it. Yeah. And and is that uh, is, is there any way to acquire more legally? I mean... Uh, every 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 now and then you hear a story about someone who knows someone who may have some Brazilian rosewood, but right now, if you don't have the paperwork, we can't buy it. It's re- right. Even and like, well, but I remember buying it nope. from a luthier back in the seventies. No. Did you get a receipt? I think I did, but I lost it. We can't buy it. We can't. We just can't touch it right now. This stuff is so highly regulated that we. If we were to buy it without the permit, now it's our problem. It's right. not, this is not an opportunity. Without all the proper documentation, we're terribly sorry we can't buy it. And will we ever get uh, source wood from Madagascar? I know that's a, that's a huge problem. Boy, I, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I have been trying. We, we got some really nice wood out of Madagascar right before they shut it down. 
And it's really, unfortunately, it's about corruption. That the, the, the NGOs, and I respect their work, their feeling is that any wood that you buy out of Madagascar is involved in a corrupt enterprise. And so we have stopped. They, they have, and so now the wood has very little value. Madagascar has two things going for it, that if they could get their act together and get rid of the corrupt government, ecotourism and exotic timber. I'm not saying that it would completely re rebuild the country, but it would provide revenue. So right now there's logs that were confiscated that may or may not have been illegal, and been, they've been like questioning it for years. They're sitting outside. And so we sent a team to just go look at them. And the team came back and said, they're probably already not usable. Because, because they're they, rotting. They're or... rotting. They don't know how to store them. They don't yeah. understand the value. It's, yeah, Madagascar rosewood is spectacular. Is it uh, of Indian rosewood and of everything which is not as, the grain is not as spectacular it's, it's as Brazilian? Part of it's the look, you know, that, is... that with the black lines and all. You don't get that as much in Indian rosewood. And, Indian. and you get it more in Madagascar yes. rosewood. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, like Indian and Madagascar, when you tap them like this, they have this, like, crystal ring. Indians has it, but... Yeah, that, I mean, my great-great-great-grandfather didn't decide to use rosewood because he was the only person that said it makes a great guitar. But you talk to anyone who makes acoustic guitars, and they're like, yes, if right. I could get Brazilian rosewood, I would use it, of So course. is there any part of Marin that is focused about how do we get wood out of Madagascar, or is it just too complicated? I keep bringing it up, and every time I do, we, we've funded some studies there. The other problem is there are multiple kinds of rosewood in Madagascar. So you have to be able to determine, is this the Madagascar rosewood that they use for guitars? Or is this the Madagascar rosewood that's used for some other purpose? Because we don't want that. It's, right. it's, it's complicated. Buying exotic wood is complicated. It's re <laughs> really complicated. It is really complicated for it, guitars. Yeah. For, for guitars. If you're making furniture, it's not quite as complicated. Is there, and is there a shortage of other rosewoods? Like, is, is wood Absolutely. shortage? It, Absolutely. There really is, right? Yeah, it's, it's a diminishing... It's, there's a reason they're called rare exotic woods. Yeah. And they take a long time to grow. There's a movement, we're a part of it, to begin. And you're really and often talking to a group of people that believe they have ownership of the land and a government that says, well, in a way they do because they've been there a long time, but we, the government, also own it. So you have to talk to the people who live around the trees and the government get a permit from the government to harvest the trees and then say to the, the people where you're harvesting the tree, let's talk about regeneration. What's that? Well, that is a way for us to help Mother Nature. Well, we were going to just raise cows there. That's the wrong thing. That land accommodates tropical timber. Well, that's going to take 50 years. Yeah. So what we're going to suggest is we're going to get you a sapling and you're going to take really good care of that, and so are your kids. But around that, we're going to plant fruit trees because fruit trees grow pretty quickly. And right. you can harvest the fruit, and you can nurture that exotic whatever thing and cross your fingers and hope that maybe your grandchildren can harvest it. Right. Yeah. And are people accepting to they're, that they're sort of like, methodology? Oh, as long as you don't say, oh, you have to wait 75 years. For anything. Yeah. If you're like, no, the fruit trees will come up. But if you put a cow there... Nothing's going to grow. Nothing's going to grow. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then you, this is something that Martin especially recently has put a lot of effort into. And other guitar and companies. We're not the only ones. Well. Bob's, Bob's done a lot of work. Yeah. Yamaha's done a lot of work. Gibson. Yep. You guys put yep. together like this big packet that was like, here's everything we're doing yep. for. Right. Just to, know, for to remind people that. And, you know, I'm doing it kind of selfishly because it's a family business. And right. if we don't do these things, I'm not convinced it's going to be around. Does, shouldn't a family business be sustainable just by its by definition? The, right. <laughs> yes. So you recently did step down, and mm -hmm. you brought in a new CEO mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who is the first person ever run the company. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who's not uh, a Martin. Martin a, right. A Martin. Yeah. Does that uh, does that bother you, or does that feel like the natural evolution it, of the company? It, it, it was certainly better than selling the company, right? Right. My daughter's just turned eighteen. Um, Diane bless you, rest in peace, she was willing to accept the fact, because I said, I don't, we can't name our daughter Chris Martin, but what if we <laughs> Christina gave- Christina Martin, maybe? Or, or, uh, I, I thought that was a little corny. I said, but what about if we just went with the initials and then came up with the name? 
And so I was rooting for Connie Francis Martin myself. But Diane's like, that's Courtney. So my daughter is Claire Francis Martin. Claire Francis Martin. So someday she might come to Nashville and there'll be a poster with her picture and it will say, meet C.F. Martin tonight. Right. That, that, <laughs> that's the best we can hope for. Right. But when you hire uh, Thomas Ripson yeah. to be the CEO, yeah. he is a guitar player, but yeah. he's not a guitar manufacturer. But he took a sabbatical from work and went to guitar building school. To go, I, that's How right. How cool is that? How do you, this is the most precious thing in the world yeah. to the Martin family. Yeah. There's never been an outsider. How do yeah. you determine that this is the right guy for the job? Without getting into the gory details, he was one of several candidates. And there was just a moment after getting down to two candidates, the other gentleman was very well qualified, but I won't get into the gory details, but there was a moment when the HR director looked at me and I looked at her and we're like, Thomas, we need to hire Thomas. Yeah, he's so enthusiastic and he understands the, the magnitude of his position. He's very respectful. We have some interesting conversations. You know, I'm trying to coach him without meddling <laughs> and he often looks forward to our conversations. Once in a while, I can tell he's like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Here, oh, boy. Here, here, here comes here Chris. Goes Chris. Oh, right. God. <laughs> so what is, but what is your involvement now as exec, executive chairman? Wow. Somebody blowing something up. That, sometimes there's construction yeah. like right next door. That was pretty intense, actually, but sometimes we feel that. Anyway, everything's fine, I think. They'll come get us if it's not. Um, what, was, what was the question? What, I, I don't even remember. What was, if, you're, if you're listening and we almost died in here, this whole building almost <laughs> collapsed. Um, the, the question was about Chris. Um, oh, I, uh, uh, what is your role now? This was the question. As executive chairman of the board, what is your role now within well, the company? Well, so board meetings board right? meetings right, right um we we have a fairly formal planning process that's something i learned when i took over one of my board members said chris it's it's really the primary job of the ceo to drive a plan that you can you can just kind of make it up as you go along but Traditionally, businesses are more successful if they have a plan. And they, right. And because that, that way you can either stick to it or deviate. But if all you're doing is deviating, what are you sticking to, right? Right. So that's part of my job is to help vet the plan. It's like, look, Thomas, you have discussion with the team. Then you and I talk before we show it to the board. Because I want to tighten this thing up so that in the board meeting, if you're presenting to the rest of the board, I'm nodding my head up and down versus not back and forth going, I don't believe this because this is crazy. It's like, Thomas, you, you got to. And you know what I learned about being the boss is the people that are that's you that report to you. What their job often is in their mind is to get the boss to yes. What can I say to the boss just enough to get him to yes? And so I would say, Thomas. What I would suggest is that you ask lots of questions, because if you get if you let them get you to yes too fast, you didn't have ask enough questions because they're not going to tell you the risk as much as they're going to tell you about the reward. Right. And your job is to talk about both and then make an informed decision, because particularly if you're sitting down with someone in sales. Are they going to tell you about the risks? No. They're going to tell you about the wonderful opportunity of this fantastic thing that I'm pitching you on. Say yes, boss, please. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So, and is it his role, do you view it as as the, you know, the next person running the company? Is it his role to continue to grow it and to continue to preserve the legacy? Yeah. Or are there other areas that Martin is planning or thinking? Uh, you, you know, know what I learned, or... and I, I, I really feel when... when when Amani worked with, with me in, in marketing, she said, Chris, she said, you need to give me some guidance. I said, what's the question? Are we a house of brands? I said, tell me what that means, Amani. That means that we manage these multiple brands successfully. I said, I don't, I don't think that's us. She said, okay, we're a branded house. It's hard work managing one brand. And my feeling is that's enough. Because I think what our competitors would love is for us to chase some shiny object and take the resources that used to be dedicated to the Martin brand and put them over there. And they'd be like, put more money over there, Chris. Put all your money over there. Right. Because they, I know our competitors want to eat my lunch. I know that. That's the nature of competition, right? And there's room for all of us as long as my lunch is 
mine. Right. <laughs> How often do you talk to Bob Taylor and and any of the other CEOs? Like, do you guys have a good uh, relationship? Do you and Bob talk all the time? Not all or, the time, but we talk sometimes. Particularly at a trade show. Yeah. Um, it's a very collegial industry, and it's funny when people come from the outside. They're like, "You talk to your competitors? Oh yeah." We never did. Now, you have to be careful because there are things you can't talk about. Right. And that's really important that if you and I were competitors and if you were to say, hey, Chris, we're thinking about raising our prices. What do you think? I've been coached. My response should be, I'm leaving this meeting right now. And I wanted to be put on notice that I did not engage in this conversation with you about pricing. Right, right. (laughs) But a little bit, especially when you get to the serious guitar players, a little bit, a serious guitar player, there's going to be a role in their life for a Marin and for a Gibson. Absolutely. Acoustic and for a Taylor. And even, you know, when when someone says, oh, my son or daughter wants to play the guitar. And I go, what kind? They go, and they're apologetic. We want to play an electric. I go, I'm fine with that. It's a guitar. You get them an electric guitar. Them, Someday they're going to want an acoustic. <laughs> and, the, and it's going to be a Marin. Yeah, and, just right. And I, the one thing I do coach people on, and again, I mean no disrespect, but and there have been lawsuits about this, but depending on where you shop, there's what's what are called guitars, and you can buy them at guitar stores. If you go to a general merchandise store. You may be buying what we could refer to in the industry as a guitar-shaped object that may not actually function very well. And particularly if it's your first guitar and you get turned off. That's not great. That's terrible. Yeah. So I would suggest to the listening audience, pick a budget number that's beyond $99, unless you're buying a ukulele, and go to a music store. And buy a guitar. Yeah. Don't. You'll see them particularly around Christmas. You'll see those guitar packs. You're like Costco and, and Walmart. It's not great. You never know. Yeah. You just and they're not gonna say they didn't have anyone inspect them. And even even if you brought it back, they say it's not broken. Well, it doesn't play well, but it's not broken. <laughs> right, right, right. And for a budget of five hundred dollars, you, you get can a buy nice it, guitar. You get today. a nice Marin guitar. Nice guitar. What yeah. is there there Marin makes a lot of different guitars. Is there a secret model that you think is the best value or best bang for the buck or some something that you think is of all is there something that's sort of a sneaky great Marin guitar? The Lower-priced guitars coming out of Nazareth have the same quality as the higher-priced guitars. And in Navajoa, it's almost the opposite, that the higher-priced guitars are sort of kind of a Mexican version of a lower-priced Nazareth guitar. So it's a question of, do I want to get a high-priced guitar from Navajoa or a low-priced guitar for they may look different the lower price guitar from nazareth is going to look plainer but it was made in nazareth so it's a that's where the i think in terms of good value yeah between 500 and a thousand dollars you can find some nice martin guitars and then you then you can dream about a d45 absolutely i'm still dreaming of my d45 good chris this hour has flown by i I feel like i feel like there's so much more that that we could talk about sometime I would love next time you're in town. I please, will. please let me know. And yeah, I, and I'd love no, I've enjoyed the conversation. Do it again yeah. and dive deeper into great, it. The, the, great. This was really great. Thanks for coming by. Sure, my pleasure. And uh, Marin Guitars. There, I always say like, where can we check you out? Marin Guitars and a music store near you. That yep, that's right. where you need to go to check out Marin Guitars. Right. right. Well, in this town, a corner near you. A or, corner yeah. near you. Or, or your neighbor. They're, or, or, they're everywhere. Look on someone's back porch. Your Uber driver's trunk <laughs> right, might have right. a Marin <laughs> gu- guitar in it. Chris, thanks for coming sure, by, man. My pleasure. Hope to see you again soon. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> That was fun. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. That was great.